First Kings 22. That's where we're going to be this morning or this afternoon. First Kings chapter 22. If you turn there, please. We're going to be finished or spending the first few minutes of our study together this afternoon there in this 22nd chapter of First Kings. In this text, once you get there, as you scan through the text there, or even look at the heading, uh, we are introduced to the often little-known prophet named Micaiah. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised, and I don't say this to anybody's shame, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's at least one person here this evening who either has never heard that name before, or it's been so long you've nearly forgotten it. We don't talk about Micaiah very often. That's because you only read about him here in 1 Kings 22, and then over in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, where the same events are recorded there. And then also, he is a contemporary of Elijah. And since he wasn't a counselor to kings like Nathan in David's day or Elijah uh, and didn't share the prominence, at least as far as the biblical record is concerned, as Elijah did, we usually don't know too much about him in contrast to some of the other prophets. We know very little about him, even if you want to dig into his story. Um, so I imagine it would be quite easy to go years as a Christian, even if you have read Kings and Chronicles and not have the prophet Micaiah leave an impact on you. But that'd be a shame. We really only have one story with this particular prophet, um, but I believe it is a moving one. So I want us to take, it, take notice of it this afternoon. Um, since much of his life falls roughly parallel to that of Elijah, you are familiar with the circumstances of his um, time as a prophet already. He's called to be a prophet of God during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. So even if you don't know the, the full history of the Old Testament, just the mention of Ahab and Jezebel, or perhaps just Jezebel alone, is about all you need to understand the situation. So Ahab and Jezebel are, are leading Israel, and they have done all they can do to lead the nation away from God. We talked about the ups and downs with the various kings that would come into power with Israel and Judah, whether they would seek after the Lord or not. Ahab and Jezebel ran screaming from serving the Lord right into the arms of Baal worship. They tried to replace every last semblance of Yahweh worship with the worship of Baal. And it starts when Ahab disobeys one of God's most explicit orders to not marry outside of Israel. And when Jezebel, the Phoenician, enters his chambers, she brings her Phoenician god, Baal, with her. And it isn't too much longer before temples to Baal are constructed and the oppression of the worship of God begins. And when it comes to Baal worship, Jezebel is the model of devotion. She doesn't want a single prophet of Yahweh preaching in Israel. It's the prophets of Baal that she establishes throughout the kingdom. And for a long time, it looks as if there's nothing that's going to stop her. Until you come to 1 Kings 22 and a particular political situation that King Ahab wants to resolve. So let's pick up in verse 1, please, of 1 Kings 22. It says, For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. Now stop there for just a second. Um, to look at an introduction like that, you would think all is well. They've been going for three years without war. It isn't. There has been three years of peace, 
But that peace is in this particular case a bad thing. Because what's happened is Syria has been so strong throughout this point in history, they've actually conquered and occupied part of Israel's territory, including one of the border cities uh, known by the name of Ramoth Gilead. And for three years, Syria has been living there and controlling that area and not Israel. And the only reason there's been three years of peace is because Ahab doesn't have the forces. He can't muster the armies he needs to drive Syria from his land. So he's not driving Syria out. They're not fighting because he doesn't have the strength to do it. So in verse 3, it says, The king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. So he's mad. This is his territory. He's given it up. And it makes him look weak. And he's brooding over it on this one particular day. Reminding them of this territory that once was ours. So the city of Ramoth Gilead has either come up or, or he's been brooding about it and thinking about it. And finally he just can't sit still any longer. So he addresses his servants about some matters of state. Kind of just thinking out loud. And he says, do you know this, this place belongs to us? And for three years we've been sitting here and we haven't done anything to take it back. That's our land. And for three years, the Syrians have been living there and we're not doing anything about it. It's time. I, I think it's time that changed. But again, there's a problem because Israel hasn't tried to reclaim Ramoth Gilead because they can't do it. They're no match for the Syrians. So they're going to need to find some help. And they do so by forming an alliance with Judah. This is obviously the days of the divided kingdom. And enough time has passed now since the kingdom divided that the two kings in Micaiah's and Elijah's day are not only good friends, they are in-laws. So instead of being one kingdom, there are two kingdoms. And now there are two kingdoms that are joining themselves like all the other kingdoms of the world do with those marriage alliances. Second Chronicles 18 gives you a bit of back history to this or backstory to this. If you're taking notes, it lets you know that, that Ahab and Jehoshaphat made a, a marriage alliance together. And then after a number of years, Jehoshaphat comes down to see Ahab. And while he's there, Second Chronicles 18 says that Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people who were with him. So what that means is they throw a tremendous feast. And you've seen those kinds of things in period movies and documentaries and whatnot where they're feasting for days. And while that's going on, everyone's happy. You can imagine the scene as they're toasting each other left and right. And now Ahab and Jehoshaphat, these two kings, the, the big dogs in the room, they're feeling like doing something really kingy. And so Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, will you go to battle with me at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat says to the king of Israel, absolutely, my brother. I am, my people are as your people, my horses as your horses, I am as you are. We will go. So they get their armies together. They go up to the northeastern border of Israel. And when they get up there, Jehoshaphat has a moment of temporary sanity. And he says, before we go out and fight, there's one thing I want to do. I want to know what God says about this. That's how we do things back in Judah. We inquire first for the word of the Lord. So Ahab says, Sure. And he doesn't call just one. He calls 400 prophets to come and fulfill Jehoshaphat's request. And they say, go right on up. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But by this time in 1 Kings 22, 
And especially within the, the context of the story of Ahab and Jezebel, if you've been paying attention to the narrative as you're reading through that book, and you've seen everything that Jezebel's been doing to oppress the worship of the one true God in this part of Israel, you know they can't just go out and find 400 prophets of Yahweh. So these have got to be prophets of Baal. So Ahab has acted like, yeah, sure, you want a prophet? We can help you there. Here's 400 of them. And the prophets of Baal all say, yes, go up to Ramoth Gilead. You cannot lose. And with so much mounting against them, with everything on the line, to his credit, Jehoshaphat says in verse 7, no, you misunderstood me. Is there not a prophet of the Lord whom we may inquire, from whom we may inquire? So Jehoshaphat knows what anybody, including you've got to think Ahab knows, and that is that these prophets of Baal are going to say anything their king wants to hear. It doesn't really matter that they can't communicate with Baal in truth because there is no Baal in truth. Their job is just to give the king the answer that he's looking for, hope they've backed the right horse and don't end up dead when they're wrong. And if Ahab wants to go fight for Ramoth Gilead, they're not going to stand in his way and tell him he can't go do it. And everybody knows that. And it only seems Jehoshaphat cares. So he says, I'd like to inquire of a prophet from Yahweh. And Ahab's answer is interesting. He says, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. And then goes on to explain, but I hate him. Ahab says, every single time I ask this prophet what Yahweh has to say, he's always bringing me bad news. He's never got anything positive to say. I'm always to blame. I've got to change this, change that, or God's going to destroy me, and we are not worthy, and on and on and on. But Jehoshaphat presses him, and Ahab, who needs these armies of Judah, gives in. And that's when we're introduced to the little-known but exceedingly faithful prophet of Yahweh named Micaiah. And I'd like to suggest to you this afternoon that even though there's not much to read about Micaiah, the information that is available to us is worth the knowing. And I hope you'll see um, something of a person or something of how the people of God are supposed to be in Micaiah as we look at this story. I hope you will see something of the people of God that you know as you look at Micaiah, and I hope also you will see something of yourself as we look at him. So I've got four points for you, 20 minutes apiece. Just seeing who's paying attention. All right, first of all, point number one, Micaiah is, is scorned and rejected by the society of his day. Um, just the fact that Micaiah is not already in Samaria with Ahab and Jehoshaphat, really, if you start from where things ought to be, that says a lot. The fact that he is a prophet of the God of Israel, divinely appointed by the one true God, and yet he's not invited to the planning stages of the battle, says a lot about the situation in Israel and within the king's court. And then Ahab's words in verse 8 go beyond that, and they say everything there is to say. I hate the man. I don't want him here. So Micaiah's been rejected by the world of his day from the king on down. And when the most powerful man in the kingdom despises you, every one of his royal subjects who hears that is going to despise you too. And there's a very obvious reason for all of this discord. Ahab and Jezebel and the people of Israel want to worship Baal. They want to worship 
the fertility God that they think is going to reward their reward their worship with all of the blessings that they haven't seen as far as they're concerned since Yahweh forsook them. And if Micaiah's message is anything like the prophets before him and the prophets who will come after him to say anything like, you are the ones who forsook the Lord, that wasn't what anybody in Israel, including all the way up to the top, wanted to hear. What they wanted to hear is, is Baal will bless us. Baal will make us rich and we'll have everything we want. We don't need the God of Israel with all of his talk of repentance and changing this and changing that. So Micaiah is a man without a country. And he's a man without a country because his country has disavowed his God. You get a really good picture of what Micaiah is going through. Um, uh, thinking of the rejection. or the, You get a good picture of the rejection he's suffering. When you think of the persecution and rejection, Elijah and Elisha also suffered. There's nobody that would listen to them just about. And if Elijah could ever think uh, just a few chapters earlier, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. I wonder if Micaiah ever came to feel that way. We have studied the book of First Peter in a class um, within the last couple of years. And we're soon going to start a series of studies of sermons on the book of First Peter, tying in with our, our theme text for this year, chosen from chapter 2, verse 4 and following. And as you're familiar with that book, I think the situation of the Christians to whom Peter's writing is very similar to that of Micaiah. Uh, he says in 1 Peter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living for sensuality, passions, etc., lawless idolatry. And with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, when you don't join them. So... Peter says, I know that the people around you have noticed that you're not living the way that, that you used to now that you're a disciple of Christ. And I know that sits poorly with them. I know how they're treating you because you're a Christian, saying bad things about you, things that aren't true. Paul could sympathize with that in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 13. He says, rather vulnerably, that we apostles have become and are still like the scum of the world. That was Paul's life in, in, in some ways. That was Peter's life and the lives of his audience, at least in a way. And it's characteristic from time to time of the life of just about anybody in the Bible who determines they're going to serve God. That to one extent or another, they're rejected and sometimes scorned and mistreated. So Micaiah's dealing with some of that. A lot of it, actually. And then second point, Micaiah's rejection was certainly accompanied by the pressure to conform. To, to, to do whatever it takes to not be rejected anymore. So to be one of the, the few prophets of Yahweh, let's say one of 401 so-called prophets of the king, and then you've got an even more disparate ratio just in the country at large, it, it might be difficult for us to imagine the pressure Micaiah faces to be just like everybody else. And you see an example of this in the text of 1 Kings 22. When Ahab finally does send for him, his messenger has a word for him first. And this is in verse 13. And he says to him, essentially, Micaiah, listen, we've got 400 prophets who have come and they've stood before the two kings today. And every single one of them have been in agreement that the king is going to have a victory. 
And he pleads with them, please let your word be like the word of one of them. Say what they say. Agree with them. Speak favorably. And you almost get the impression that for once in your miserable life, do the smart thing, Micaiah, and just agree with them. And since Ahab has already said, you know, every time I see him, he's got something negative to say about me. You can imagine what it's been like for Micaiah. He's had interactions with this king before and dealt with the people and how they feel about him. So you imagine knowing you can't just go and live a peaceful, quiet life because people are in sin and God's charged him to teach them. He knows he can't just leave these ingrates behind and go somewhere else. I've done everything that I can do. I've tried to do right by them. Now it's time to find a small village where they still serve Yahweh and just focus on myself for a little while. He can't do that. So for years he's lived with this rejection in a spiritually barren region with just about no peers to lean on. And every day he's had to muster the strength to say what he says to kings. And to say what he says to the king's messenger, as Yahweh lives, I will only say what he tells me to say. Later on in the chapter, Ahab hears what Micaiah has to say. And he's so angry that he throws Micaiah in prison. And it's difficult to be certain, but the text seems to imply that he's not just throwing him into prison. He's throwing him back into prison. That he's called him from prison to hear what he has to say, and he's putting him right back in there. And if that inference is correct, then Ahab has had Micaiah thrown into prison to shut him up. Which is just another level altogether of rejection and pressure to conform. So coming back to Ahab's messenger for just a moment, when he gives Micaiah the warning, all the kings, uh, their prophets have spoken favorably, make sure you do the same. Um... I don't suppose the messenger really has any personal stake in the matter. He's trying to give him some helpful advice, trying to get Micaiah to cut himself a break, which I think is interesting because often for us, the pressure that you and I will meet to conform with this world is not in any kind of violent, threatening sort of way. Usually it's from people who believe they're well-meaning and well-intentioned, sometimes friends and family. That wonder why you have to be so religious with all of this. Why do you have to be so devoted and, 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 and constantly making the effort and constantly the sacrifice? Why in this particular instance in your life do you have to make the extremely difficult choice when the worldly thing would be easier? I can't imagine God wanting you to choose all of this and be so and have something uh, have to choose something that, that makes you sad or causes you to sacrifice. Or that sort of thing. And that, in a nutshell, is what's going on in Rome, for example, when Paul writes to them and says, do not be conformed to this world. Every Roman around them doesn't understand why they're living the way they are. And going back to 1 Peter, Peter says in chapter 1 and verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And the message is clear. There's pressure for them to conform. They still have a lot of, of, of ignorant contacts, friends who are ignorant to what God actually teaches. People that they love who don't understand why they have to be so different all of a sudden. And are pressuring them just to, to live like a normal person does. Why are you bothering with all of this? So with all of that pressure to conform would also come the, the, the pressure to compromise your convictions. And that's the third thing I would suggest you, Micaiah, faces. And it's all for the sake of, of just his own well-being. Back in 1 Kings 22, in verse 12, 
you may notice some of the formatting looking different if you look carefully. Uh, the prophets of Baal speak, but suddenly the word Lord has gone from the regular kind of formatting to small caps or all caps or whatever your Bible does when it's translating the word Yahweh into the word Lord. What that means is their panderings reach new heights. So they, now they've, they've changed. So these are prophets of Baal, and now they're saying what Yahweh is actually wanting. So you want a word from Yahweh too? We'll ask him for you, no problem. What do you want to know? He says you're going to win too. So they're just acting like they can communicate with anybody. And if Micaiah could come forward and, and back them up and just say one thing one time that Ahab wants to hear and not contradict 400 other prophets and the desires of the kings of Israel and Judah, then just maybe this is the day that things turn around for him. He gets out of prison and starts repairing his life. So maybe he can reason with himself, surely the Lord doesn't want me to suffer this way for this long. I'm his prophet can it possibly be the will of God that my life has to be so harsh and people treat me and hate me the way that they do? And maybe, you know, I think I could do a whole lot better work for the Lord if I were more friendly with these people and, and, and kind of um, gave a little so that I could get a little. And maybe I shouldn't be so harsh and take such a, a strong, excluding stance and, and maybe try to appreciate their point of view a little bit better. And if I do that, they might reciprocate and, and I can have an effect on them. In Revelation 2 and verse 10, as Jesus is speaking to one of the churches in Asia Minor, he says, I know about your suffering. I know about your poverty. I know what's being said about you. They say that they are Jews, but they're not. Their synagogue actually belongs to Satan. And you're about to suffer. And he says, but I don't want you to be afraid. He says, the devil's even going to throw some of you into prison to test you. You'll suffer and for a long time. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, he says, I'll give you a crown of life. So that pressure to compromise your convictions, I think is the third thing that Micaiah would have faced. And then a fourth thing is that as he's facing all of this, at least as far as he looks around, he's primarily alone. There, there's no mention of any other prophet that's available, at least as far as I can find. There in verse 8, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. That's an incredibly revealing statement. It's a sad statement. This isn't Babylon or Persia. This is the kingdom of Israel. This is the land that God gave to his people. And now during the reign of one of his anointed, when somebody asks for a prophet of Yahweh, they can only think of one name. And you know, given how Ahab says he feels about Micaiah, that if he could have come up with another name, he would have offered it. He despises Micaiah. So I imagine if he had another option, that's who he'd call. But he has to call Micaiah because it doesn't seem there's anybody left. And you have to wonder, well, where did they all go? Is it really this bleak? And then not just the prophets, but the citizenry. Where are the people of God? How many of them are there actually left? And maybe sometimes it feels that way. You are asked to commit to God's service and, and, and make that uh, and be devoted and serve faithfully and do his work. And maybe you get to find yourself around the people of God when you come to worship, but that's only a few hours of any given week. You've got all those other hours where maybe nobody else comes with you when it comes to making the right choice. 
It's often been that way for, for the, the heroes of faith that you can read about in the Bible, Micaiah being one of them, that regardless of, of how little print is devoted to them, when they stood, they stood, and sometimes against enormous odds. Even if the odds are that you'll never get a bit of human recognition for what you do, and there won't be one single chapter, of course, added to the Bible, telling of your faithfulness, and maybe you can't even convince people to do the right thing, as Micaiah doesn't succeed with here. And no one's going to know about your faithfulness, at least outside of, of your congregation and your family and those that you can teach. Nobody else is going to know of the, the sacrifices in the life you tried to live in honor before the Lord until you're called home to him. It still needs to be with us as it was with Micaiah. So when the servant comes forward and he, he's trying to get Micaiah to tell Ahab what he wants to hear, Micaiah's response again is, what the Lord says to me, that's what I'll speak. And I just suggest to you that Micaiah teaches us something, um, something lasting and meaningful about dedication to purpose. So when Micaiah tells, or, uh, tells the servant it doesn't work that way, or at least I don't, in, in Luke 9... The longest gospel narrative is just about a third of the way through the story of the life of Christ in verse 51. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus came to this earth with a purpose. And he kept his eyes on it and lived for it. In Luke 13, verse 32, the Pharisees come to test Jesus, trying to drive him away. They say in verse 31, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus says, you go and tell Herod, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. So Herod can do what he wants. I've got a job to do and I'm going to see it through. And he sets his face to go to Jerusalem and the will of God was going to be done no matter what got in the way. It's, of course, Paul who says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So Paul understands dedication the way that Micaiah does. In Colossians 1 and verse 28, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 10, when his life is almost over, Paul says to Timothy, You followed my teaching, my conduct, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings, and my purpose. Purpose defines Paul and Timothy, of course the Lord, and Micaiah, his prophet, as well. And then I'd say, secondly, Micaiah is dedicated to his purpose and also determined to speak the word of God. I love that answer. What the Lord says to me, that I will speak. In verse 15, back in 1 Kings chapter 22, he comes before the kings, finally. And they're sitting on their thrones at the city gates. They're dressed up about as much as possible. They're surrounded by the prophets of Baal, I suspect, leaping and dancing and doing all the business that they did at Mount Carmel. And the king says, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And Micaiah, I, I love it sometimes when you're reading the prophets. They've got a sense of humor and some sarcasm that they wield deftly. And I just wish I could see him. He says, go up and triumph. 
The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And I wish I could see it and hear it because something from his tone or expression makes his sarcasm clear and, and, and crystal clear because Ahab responds, how many times shall I make you, and listen to this, swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord, which is just absurd to act as if the problems have been Micaiah all along, but Micaiah doesn't even bother with that. He says, all right, you ask what I see. I see all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, they, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. So I see Israel scattered and their sheep without a shepherd and servants without a master. Which means, all right, you want to know what I see? I see that if you go to this battle, you won't come home from it. And says, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, only evil? I knew that's what he was going to say. Micaiah has a determination to speak boldly the word the Lord gives him. And no matter what point in time you look at within the history of God's people, when they have a boldness to speak the word of God, things of God get done. So skip over several examples in Acts 4. The apostles have been preaching in Jerusalem to great success and their enemies are threatening them now with physical harm to the extent it genuinely scares some of them. And you get the depth of their fear when you see what they do in response. They come back to the church and they pray together for boldness because they needed it. And in verse 29, they pray, Lord, look upon these threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. To look at a few other passages in Colossians 4 and verse 3, Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So it's kind of getting near to the end for Paul, and he knows this, and he knows it's going to try his resolve and his courage. In 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2, Paul says though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And then to come once again from Paul's uh, letter to Timothy, he says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And that kind of leads to another thing. Micaiah has courage. I mean, he's just got courage. And sometimes, doesn't it really just come down to that? You preach and you study about what you need to know. And we took some time in our uh, planning meeting yesterday to, to discuss the, the best ways, that we, the wisest ways that we could try to teach 
what needs to be taught. The wisest ways that we could try to make the most of opportunities with Fourth Friday and whatnot. But often enough, it just comes down to getting out there and doing it. Is the spirit in me God's spirit and one of power or a spirit of fear and hesitance? Or maybe even a little bit of being shameful about the testimony of my God. Because I've got to say that God's against some things that a lot of folks I'm going to talk to think ought to be just fine. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So there's a cost to be paid, and I've got to count it. And Micaiah had, and he was willing to pay it. And he'd been paying it for years. And he knew, I suspect, and as much as he's still alive, that Ahab still has something left to take from him. But he still speaks the word of God. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, Paul says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Meaning, if you're going to be a Christian, at some point it's going to be hard for you, and it's not just going to you know, get better all of a sudden. It's not just going to get better and keep getting better and better and better and better. It's going to stay evil. At least here it will, for a while. So yes, a reward is coming, but you've got to count the cost that you're going to pay in the interim. There's going to be some difficult steps to take as a Christian. And Micaiah teaches us it's worth paying that price. And then a final thing I'd say that Micaiah teaches us, and it's cliche, but it's that one person can make a difference. When you think about how alone he's got to feel. Yes, if God is for us, who can be against us? But when you're in a quiet, dreary prison cell... You imagine that might get a little hard to remember sometimes. You have to wonder why would anybody ever listen to Micaiah? And almost no one does. But when Micaiah continues to speak, this is what he says. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. This is one of those intriguing texts. We're not going to try to dive in to find the solution to exactly what's going on here. But he says, the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And ultimately, a spirit comes forward and stands before the Lord and says, I will entice him. I'll go out. I'll be the lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Baffling what's going on there. It leaves me with a lot of questions. But it says, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So Ahab, you're going to die. And of course, Ahab does not listen. He says, seize Micaiah, take him back to, to Ammon, the governor of the city, to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. So I'm going to come back here, never mind what you've said, and I want you to make sure he's real uncomfortable until I do. And Micaiah says very simply, if you return in peace, then the Lord has not spoken by me. But as the story goes on, of course, Ahab meets his end. What's interesting is he acts like he doesn't believe Micaiah's words at all. But when he gets back to the battle, he trades all of his kingly clothing for that of a regular soldier. 
And while he's out in battle, some random soldier just firing away at random sinks an arrow right between the joints of Ahab's armor. Just, and, and he bleeds to death. And that's the end of Ahab. And it's not the end of Micaiah, though. The only thing is, we have no idea what the end of Micaiah actually is, at least on this earth. Um, and as far as his record is concerned, that's the last thing we read about him. We're never told another thing about him. Is he ultimately, by the mercies of God, released from prison and able to go into his days in quiet and peace? Or does he die in prison? I have no idea. So the question comes, what difference did it all make? Ahab still goes into battle. Ahab still dies. As far We don't know if anyone comes to let Micaiah out. You know, Micaiah was right. Did they come and they find him and set him up as an advisor? Kind of doubt it. Um, Ahaziah, Ahab's son, takes the throne. The same thing that's said of him is what's said of so many before him. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So I doubt he's not going to be too fond of, uh, of Micaiah. And Israel continues to do evil until they're finally wiped off the map by Assyria. But Jehoshaphat, he goes and, and continues to be godly. He's one of the ones we read about earlier today that, that purifies Judah in ways that they might not have been otherwise willing to do. Um, he's not one that he didn't empty out the, the high places that was Hezekiah, but he does a great deal of good. And you have to wonder, did Micaiah have any influence upon him when he was there this day? How he stood for God's truth, no matter what it was going to personally cost him. And Jehoshaphat saw firsthand somebody who rejected the truth of God. Did it motivate him to go back there and, and do some of these things he needed to do? Who knows where his resilience uh, affected the king of Judah's resilience. And perhaps attributed to him remaining righteous at least, a, or Judah remaining righteous, I should say, at least a little longer. Who knows if any of the prophets of Baal, witnessing the accuracy of, of Yahweh and his prophet, decided Baal is, is, is no God to follow after all. And then, of course, who is, a, who is it that can actually measure the effect that Micaiah has had just on countless others all the way down throughout the years of, of history as generation after generation has read 1 Kings 22 and seen what this relatively minor biblical figure accomplishes because he's dedicated to his purpose. He's determined to speak the will of God and courageous enough to do it when everything else is going against him and even if he's the only one who's doing it. So who could possibly measure the effect he's been able to have on everybody who's ever read his story? And I wonder what effect he'll have on us. May we emulate the service that Micaiah rendered to God. And dedicate, our, dedicate ourselves to the purpose of God and determine that we're going to, if we have not yet, confess Christ as Lord and be courageous enough to come forward and confess that faith and put away anything that would draw us away from our God and be willing, no matter what anyone may say, to become a disciple of Jesus. To do anything else is to pretend that a lie is the truth, the same way Ahab wanted to do. To pretend that you are uh, something other than what you really are. Ahab thinks he's, he's, he's moving forward with the blessings of the gods. And he most certainly was not. He's trying to convince himself that everything is fine. It certainly was not. And that did not stop the one true God's will from finding him. 
after all of the deception, all the misdirection, all of the supposed armor, nothing saved him. It is only heeding the will of God that would have saved him. And that's exactly what can save us. So if you have not heeded the will of God this afternoon, we invite you to do that while we stand and sing.